Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Well, there's Tory MP Sir Oliver Letwin. Jeremy Corbyn is setting out a Venezuela-style socialism. And then Conservative Secretary of State Priti Patel. To turn a blind eye and refuse to speak out as their socialist friends and comrades unleash violence and repression against people and communities. And of course, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Philip Hammond. Where the economic policies of Hugo Chavez, publicly supported by Jeremy Corbyn, have so tragically impoverished the country that it can no longer feed its people. Britain faces Venezuelan-style food shortages if Jeremy Corbyn gets into power. That's the uh, warning from the Tories as they watch their party split over Brexit. Instead, they say we should stick together and save Britain from Corbyn and the catastrophic effects of Venezuelan socialism. So is that scaremongering? Or is there a similarity between the ideas of the Venezuelan regime and the UK's Prime Minister-in-waiting? Well, Steve Keane is here. Steve, look, the Conservative press tend to believe any form of collectivism is bad. Socialism is a swear word. Under Lenin's Russia, of course, it led to the 1921 famine. Pol Pot wanted to raise living standards through the collective, but he ended up they ended up killing about five million people. And of course, Hugo Chavez talked about democratic socialism, but look at his successor and the state of Venezuela today, all, you could say, driven by uh, Marxist ideology. So have the Tories got a point? <laughs> um, it actually reminds me of a, a bloke you and I would both know of and... Uh, look back at very fondly these days is Malcolm Malcolm Fraser, not Malcolm Turnbull, but Malcolm Fraser, the previous, uh, the, the, the last, uh, John Howard was the most powerful uh, liberal, uh, liberal, of course, being Australia's conservative party, the most uh, powerful in the past, but the predecessor of him was Malcolm Fraser. And Fraser ultimately resigned from the party and is uh, ended up supporting a whole range of humanist attitudes about like refugee settlement, um, he was against uh, the level of privatisation that Howard put through and so on. And at one stage, he was asked, why did you leave the Liberal Party? And his answer was, I didn't leave the Liberal Party. The Liberal Party left me. Mm. So you, mean, point, so, so you think yeah. politics has shifted so much since his day, it's, in other words? It's shifted so much. I mean, the, the, for example, uh, Fraser was responsible for establishing the SBS, which is the Special Broadcasting Service in Australia, which was specifically dedicated to bringing in non-Anglo-Saxon uh, views and media uh, through the public broadcaster. Uh, he was also responsible for uh, when the when the um, uh, Cambodian regime collapsed, uh, an open door policy to let all those people who wanted to be refugees from uh, Cambodia, then then Kampuchea, migrate to Australia. So a huge part of the Asian influx that determined the social mix of Australia to occurred under a conservative Liberal Party prime minister. And now, of course, you see the uh, horrific treatment of refugees that Australia's, it's really become bipartisan, unfortunately. It's not just the Liberal mm. Party doing it, Labor as well. Uh, incarceration on Manus Island, deliberately make the position so intolerable, people will not even consider leaving, being persecuted in, in uh, Sri Lanka to, uh, to come over to Australia. They won't even consider the journey because 
the journey is bad enough, the destination looks worse. And that's a deliberate policy to stop people coming to the country. That's right. Uh, how, but, how bad can we make Australia look so that no one wants to yeah, come here? But, yeah, I mean, yeah. but, but I mean, this shift to the right, uh, mm. I mean, as part and parcel of that, I mean, if we just look at the word socialism, for example, it's now mm. it's now a swear word, isn't it? And and in fact, the, the, the term socialism and communism seem interchangeable for Americans in particular, uh, whereas in the UK, socialism was an acceptable word. In fact, you know, many people in Britain would say, well, we are a socialist country. And yet now the Tories seem to be wanting to use socialism as a, as a bad word. In fact, they're putting yeah. Venezuelan socialism to make it make it sound worse. So yeah. I guess this is symptomatic of that shift to the right. Yeah, it is. And, and, and like to, if you look at like one of the remarkable things in the American election between uh, before Trump, uh, before Sanders got squeezed out, uh, by Clinton is that he was happily calling himself a democratic socialist. Now that word used to be a, a total. You mentioned the word socialism. That's it. You're a minority party. His support actually rose at that time. So what you've got is a a political class which I think is polarised towards the right. I was shifted towards the right in general. A lot of positions which um, Labor Party and uh, the Democrats in America put forward would be seen as Republican or conservative policies from 40 years earlier uh, but the conservatives themselves have gone across to the stage where they're trying to make it into a swear word now of course at the same time particularly in the uk but also in america uh, the working class and the middle class have experienced the downside of an attitude of complete privatization let's uh, let's dismantle the state let's go back to the stage where it's all free market the minimal possible role for the government maximal for the private sector and that ideology was supposed to be a bit like taking castor oil. Tastes bad, but it's good for you. Mm. Well, 40 years later, I mean, people have had a long time to look at it in you know, the midlands of, of the UK, the the, uh, the Rust Belt of America, and they say, well, we've, we've lost our, our security, we've lost our, our jobs, we're working in, you know, uh, zero contract hours, uh, uh, shitty jobs in, in Henny Penny rather than which you know, were jobs in well-managed industrial enterprises like Ford and so on, and they're saying this isn't the promised land. Yeah, but you know, but you yeah. know, the counter to that would be people saying, "Well, you know, take a look at Cuba. There's a supposedly a, uh, a socialist country. You know, look at all the money they're spent on welfare and education. Mm-hmm. They say, hey, look, you know, we've got the best education in our region, but our GDP per capita, you know, it's half the world average. There's a lot of people struggling in Cuba. Yeah, and it's. I mean, I've been to Cuba recently, and I saw that, and and so I, I have seen what actual socialism was like in practice in the sense of visiting Cuba. Um, I don't think I've ever been to any, I never went to any other um, Soviet country or socialist country self-declared before there was a a breakdown. So my first trip to China, uh, I made in 91, 92, and that was after Deng Xiaoping had got to prominence and was wiping out the Gang of Four. In fact, I was there during the trial of the Gang of Four. By the way, for listeners who are a bit too young, that is not a boy band. Uh, that is the uh, the wife. That was the nickname given by Deng Xiaoping and friends to Madame Mao and her three major collaborators in the aftermath to the death of, of Mao uh, when Deng Xiaoping rose again to power. And they were driving out that uh, Maoist-style socialism in China and replacing it with Deng's very pragmatic approach. So, but Cuba I did go to. And one of my attitudes before I left, I wanted to see Cuba before the Americans ruined it. And I came back from it thinking, I'm looking forward to the Americans ruining Cuba. (laughs) But it was yeah, because... Because everything about socialism, which was expressed by a brilliant Hungarian economist called Janos Kornai in books that I'd read 
20, 30 years earlier uh, about what happens in a genuinely socialist economy, which is not at all what Corbyn is talking about, uh, but a genuinely socialist dominated economy where uh, the state takes over as much as it can and you have as minimal possible market system. That's the ch- classic socialism. And in that sense, Cuba is the best of it. And it's a failure. But isn't that so, isn't that when when you talk about that where you know everything's under state control and and you know and certainly that was the case in 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 Cuba wasn't it in in 1981 for example uh, the, the figures I found nine out of ten people worked in the public sector and the rest were self employed uh, mm. so completely centralized but I mean that in my mind that's communism you know you sort of like have that central control whereas socialism. Uh, you know, you're still obviously dividing out um, money as it as it's needed, and it is. In, but it's more related to your contribution, so it's more more of a hybrid. Whereas uh, that central control, I see, has been communism. Yeah, well, that's there's all sorts of ways these terms are defined, and um, and communism, as Marx defined it, was to be a final state after socialism had done so much more to improve the product capability than would have happened under capitalism. So it was going to be a, a nirvana where there was, there was plenty, you know, absolutely no shortages. And then in that situation, there'd be no need for the state. So the state would, as Marx literally did write, the state would wither away, have nothing to do. Uh, and people all be in, co- in co- sort of collective cooperative communes was Marx's vision. And that is, of course, nothing like whatever actually eventuated. But the parties that, that formed, the, the real starting point was the Bolsheviks in, in Russia. Mm. And, of course, this is actually the 100th anniversary of the Bolshevik coup. So I think in that sense, the Tories have been quite unimaginative. They could actually be comparing him to Stalin, you know, Venezuela, you know. Um, why not push the button? Why to go all the way to Stalin? I mean, you know, we, we can, we, we're allowed to use Hitler these days because of Trump. Why can't they use Stalin because of of, um, of 100 years since the war and, and, and Corbyn? So it is, it is uh, the socialism as was practiced in Russia was, according to the ideology, a transitional phase where the state had to take over the means of production and you had to have what Marx, again, unfortunately called the dictatorship of the proletariat. I'm sure he thought that was a great um, piece of rhetoric when he wrote it. Uh, What it led to, ultimately, was Stalin. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and those elements, though, you know that that whole Marxist thing about you know, well, you know, we're going to uh, nationalize everything. We're going to uh, we're going to win through uh, through class struggle. I mean that that is the Tory fear because the, they they see Jeremy Corbyn as as doing a bit of that, don't they? You know, there's well, uh, you know, the, the, the the reality is that you what, what was to, t- to attenuate that in the progressive West uh, after the when when we saw what actually happened under Stalin. Uh, both before it was revealed by Khrushchev and when it was actually when Khrushchev just came down and said, this, this is what this um, madman did to us. Um, and it became publicly acknowledged. Um, the, the West developed what they call democratic socialism. And the meaning of that term was that there is a definite role for the market system. So there was no desire for parties to call themselves democratic socialist parties, which includes, of course, the governing parties for a large part of the uh, post-war period of Germany, and France and Italy, okay, um, and Scandinavia. Uh, Scandinavian countries all would call themselves democratic socialist. And, of course, in none of those countries, anybody tried to abolish the market system. What what tends up to happen is people say, well, there are, there's a role for the market and a role for the state, and the role for the state is the provision, largely speaking, of, of facilities which you don't want run on a profit motive uh, because the most essential thing is to have... 100% reliability of supply of these 
aspects of the world. And one of those things you 100% reliably supply of, for example, is the electric power system. You don't want a shortage to occur because somebody skimped on maintenance so that they can declare a higher profit that particular quarter mm. and then have the system break down, uh, which is the negative side of a capitalist system in that the, if you have what is a long-lived uh, resource like, you know, for example, a, a power grid, if that long-lived resource um, is being managed by somebody who's answering for three monthly reports in terms of profit levels, then if you have an unscrupulous manager, and of course I know that is a total fiction. <laughs> there is no such thing as an unscrupulous manager. I, I admit that's a, a fantasy, but I'll let me run with it anyway. Um, they can in- increase their profits by running down their maintenance for a few years um, and yep. then leave with a golden handshake and become extremely well. Because this has never happened. You know, I know it's never, it's never happened. happened. But on the but, no, no, no. but, but that's hypothetical to say it could happen. Uh, then that's an argument for saying, well, that's something we don't run by the market. We prefer to have somebody administering that whose main function is to re- guarantee reliability of supply. Okay, but being and, de- being devil's advocate on that though, I yeah. mean, you know, you can turn that the other way, and that can be completely distorted as well. So let's look at Cuba, for example, where they yeah. thought, well, everyone should have uh, access to very cheap fuel, and uh, you know, and there was, uh, you know, and, and and also let's put price controls on everything. So uh, mm. you know, yeah, so and that's. Cr- and that's Creating yeah, out it, the opportunity for anybody to make any money in, yeah. in, in the private sector. And this is why I, I actually like the, the concept in the Buddhist, as well as I know the Buddhist religion, uh, being an agnostic. But uh, I saw a lovely little uh, illustration of how Buddha got his major insight uh, one day. And that was he was sitting on the banks of a river, uh, just admiring the scene and, and saw a, a boat go past with a, with a young, uh, you know, it wasn't a violin, but it was some instrument, some Asian musical instrument. Uh, maybe a sitar, and um, the student's playing it and the he's adjusting the strings and the instructor said, no, you don't want it too loose because it won't make a note. You don't want it too tight because it'll it'll break. Mm. And mm. there's a, oh, balance. You need one side, you need yin, you need yang. Yeah. And, and that is fundamentally what democratic socialism is about. There is definitely a role for the market. You do not want the market uh, uh, being supplanted by uh, private rationing systems for everyday commodities, uh, which can be made on a short term for a profit, and where you, you know, if the if the supply doesn't come through for that particular pack, there's another pack somewhere else. Doesn't matter. But you you equally you don't want the profit motive where you want to guarantee reliability of supply and where whatever you're providing is a, is a public service where if you don't take advantage of the service, other people suffer. And that's, of course, the idea hold that with a national health scheme uh, that if somebody else's health means you don't catch disease. So it, it's a sense of striking a balance. Now, of course, but that balance is that that you know we're back to where we started in this conversation because mm-hmm. that sense of balance depends on uh, where your political uh, alliances are. I mean, yeah, it's, and, and if you go for the extreme, which the Tory Party comes out of on this front, is is the, the little book we know, which is in Maggie Thatcher's hand, handbag at all time, and that's the road to serfdom, which is Hayek's proposition that any concession to allow anything to be run by the state is taking you, you're winning on the road to Russia. You'll end up as serfs. Mm. And therefore, you should stop any uh, direction whatsoever of non-state provision of anything. And if you look at the most extreme uh, instances of that, then people argue the police force should be something you pay for. Uh, You know, you get protection from the police if you're paying to the police company. And... And literally, I mean, I, I don't know this for sure, but I've seen it said that Milton Friedman's, uh, Milton Friedman's one, being sort of a, a semi-acolyte of Hayek as well as uh, monetarism, Hayek, uh, Milton Friedman 
argued there was a role for the state in the military, a role for the state in the police force, et cetera, et cetera. And apparently his son thought he was bolshy because he, uh, believing the police force should be publicly owned when his son reckoned it should be privately owned. You should pay for police protection. Um, that, that I hope is enough of an extreme analogy to make people think, oh, I don't want that. But that's, that's the political push of saying any step towards any state provision of anything is going to end up in Soviet Russia. Yeah. Well, of course, if you take it too far the other way, you will have to pay uh, for police protection. You have to uh, hire uh, independent bodyguards to look after yourself if you've got any money, wouldn't you? But let's which look happens, at- <laughs> Yeah, which happens across the ocean from Cuba and in Brazil, of course. Yeah. Well, I mean, and so let's look at um, let's look at the idea of Venezuela then, because that's, that's the example that's being made, you know, and, uh, you know, and I'm pointing to Jeremy Corbyn and saying, yes, Venezuelan socialism is what we're going to see. And, and, mm. and, and of course, you know, the, the argument behind that all gets back to the fact that he and Hugo Chavez were friends, supposedly, and- Ken Livingston invited Chavez to uh, talk at Westminster. Uh, you look at that country today. I mean, you look at uh, you know the poor, the civil unrest, the corruption again, mm-hmm. uh, market distortions like we saw in Cuba, uh, making it impossible for businesses to survive. It's so it's clearly not working. And yet, you know, I guess the idea from Hugo Chavez, uh, you know, the principles were perhaps right, but it was shown not to work in practice. Well, I think, and I don't know enough about Venezuela to actually comment. So, um, uh, the intriguing thing I can make a comment about is Ecuador, because I've spent quite a bit of time in Ecuador, and uh, I've met—I haven't met Chavez, but I haven't met um, Korea, who is—I actually be meeting Korea in a couple of weeks' time uh, at a conference, the United Nations conference. Um, we're speaking in the same same panel, um, but I've been in the country long enough. I've met a lot of the officials. I've seen the state of the economy and so on. And nobody's saying, danger, danger, we're going to get Ecuadorian socialism. <laughs> uh, okay, because it's actually worked fairly well there. I mean, there's uh, all sorts of problems in any economy, of course, but the general, the standard of living there, um, the the things which were made private, the things which were made public, uh, the extreme right is making the same sorts of noises about uh about the um, Korea's party, and I've forgotten the name of the current the current incumbent. Korea's uh, retired, though he might come back to power later. But that was a that was more like what Corbyn is actually talking about, and probably going not as going as far as Korea did, uh, because he really is talking about there are things which we privatise in the belief that the private sector does everything better, and those things are working less well than they were when they were run by the state in the fifties and sixties. Such things as the national health scheme, uh, education. Um, you know the the power system and so on, and and the railroads. And so what we've seen in the UK is the impact of privatising these things, going taking steps away from the so-called road to serfdom. And what people have seen is it means we're paying uh, more for transport than you pay in the con- much more for public transport. We've got a health system which has got stressed out nurses who are breaking down because they simply can't. Do what they need to do for their for their customers, uh, where the, and we're seeing private goods making profit out of these provisions, which mean people are being excluded from services as part of getting that profit. No, but and the health service—that's what but, but the health service is owned and operated by the well. It, you know, it, it's a series of private enterprises, I guess, working for working for the government. But basically, it's funded and operated by the by the government. I mean, doesn't that point to to an example? You know, when when a government controls a, a great part of the economy. 
aren't there just too many moving parts and there's more potential for them to get it wrong, particularly if they've not got... And I hate saying this because I don't necessarily agree with it, but you can understand yeah. I'm trying to be the devil's advocate a bit here. But there's yeah. got to be the profit motive in amongst all of this at some point because otherwise there is the potential that you make a, a, a conclusion that you're doing something for the public good and you get it wrong. You you know, and, and, and that just, again, as we saw, you know, I'll go back to that example of price controls, you know, which which distort mm-hmm. the market. Uh, if, if the government is doing too much, isn't there danger that that sort of thing happens? It is a, is a potential danger. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of these things come down to letting professionals do their job. Because one thing I find quite marked in the UK compared to any other country I've spent a lot of time, and it's really basically compared with Australia, but also what I've seen in America and traveling around, spending a lot of time in parts of Europe, is that there's a level of distrust uh, you don't trust the teacher to do the right thing. So what do you got to do? You've got to monitor the teacher all the time. And the monitoring overload is so enormous that ultimately the professionals who are doing it realize they're being treated like amateurs and get annoyed and leave. And you then have a degradation of the quality of the service because people who actually go into the service because they want to provide service, not because they're trying to make a huge profit for themselves or a huge wage, get driven away and the 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 powers that what the government is doing is actually starving that system of the resources that are necessary for professionals to operate at the level they know that is necessary. So it, it's one of those things where it's very, very hard to set a price motive or, or an individual price uh, for people to pay. So you you have to have the government providing sufficient resources to do it. And if the decision is made to provide less than sufficient or to have myths about efficiency dividends, which mean, you know, every year we think you can do things with one and a half percent less money. So every year we take out a so-called efficiency dividend. And in fact, there is no such thing. So what you're doing is providing one and a half percent less money every year Mm. and adding a bureaucratic layer that takes a large part of that one and a half percent to begin with. Uh, you end up degrading the services so much people want them privatised. Well, that efficiency dividend is, you know, if we were seeing that growth in productivity, then that would be fine. But we're not seeing that growth in productivity. So it's a, you know, it's it's clearly a cut. Uh, mm-hmm. Let me give you a quote. Che Guevara, Guevara said, man truly achieves his full human condition when he produces without being compel- compelled by the physical necessity of selling himself as a commodity. Mm which sounds great but it does sound like a bit of a luxury doesn't it nice nice if that's the way we all to operate but is it practical yeah it's practical for some but it's not practical for all i mean again again because at the other extreme if you take one of my favorite books on what gives capitalism its vitality book by a guy called bill janeway who's one of the funders for inet a very successful venture capitalist but also has a phd in economics from cambridge university under nikki caldor and joan robinson so very uh broadly educated man and he said that what actually leads entrepreneurs to make investments is partially the sheer drive they have which is the animal spirit stuff that Keynes talked about but it's also the prospect of enormous gain uh, and and that enormous gain has to be there to encourage them to take the risk and, and waste that's involved in a massive innovation mm. whereas if you have a bureaucratic system doing it sometimes we'll make that enormous investment if we did for the the race to the moon uh, with the competition with the Soviets, but it won't be done in a bureaucratic system and they won't take the risks. Um, in fact, what happens with the bureaucratic system is you find more and more reasons to avoid taking risks and any anything which goes wrong leads to a whole set of protocols to stop that going wrong anywhere ever again and the protocols tend to weigh the system down it becomes sclerotic. And that is a very good description of what's happened ironically under the attempts to make the education system in the UK more private. 
But I wonder whether Jeremy Corbyn would agree with you on all of that, given that, uh, you know, uh, he was a, uh, you know, a friend of Hugo Chavez and Hugo Chavez said there's no third way between socialism and capitalism. The only way forward for humanity is socialism. He said that. I mean, that 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 doesn't sound like balance, does it? That says no, no. And that's, it's, it's, you do get both extremes. I mean, I've, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, because I was involved in student movements, like, like the rethinking economics movement. Now, I was more like the modern rethinking students who were critical of economic theory, not critical of the economic system itself necessarily. Whereas I was surrounded by a bunch of Marxists. And I, I've, and and they were cardboard cutout Marxists in that sense who believed the labour theory of value and all the stuff that I think Marx got wrong, and they believed that you should completely replace capitalism with socialism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I thought they were off their rockers, frankly. Um, so I've seen the extremism on both the right and the left, and the, the real question is how do you work out a, a, a coherent and sensible idea of a balance between things which are better provided by the state because you want them generally provided. Uh, you don't want them to be only available depend on the amount of money people are earning versus others where you do want it to be based on people's individual expenditures and you don't want the state in there telling you how to design a design a telephone mm. at the same time a lot of the innovations that make the telephone possible come from state-funded research so it's it's a it, this seems to be the hardest thing for humanity is to strike a balanced perspective on anything. Yeah, and I, I wonder whether yeah, absolutely, and it seems to be uh, even more difficult uh, these days for whatever reason than it was a few decades ago. But mm. we, but we've, but I wonder whether also the idea of trying to get this balance is harder these days because, uh, you know, I, go back a few decades, go back before Margaret Thatcher came on the scene, for example, mm. and and Britain really did have a mixed economy, but it was also yeah. you know economies around the world were quite, were quite closed as well. There was less in, international trade, and you think for socialism to work well um socialism rather than communism you know as a positive thing uh the the economy the more closed the economy is to the outside world the the better it it, it's going to function and in fact if you look at pol pot you know the uh now there's a regime you don't want to emulate but their (laughs) their perspective was you know a collectivist approach means economic independence military independence in other words you control what you make you keep the outsiders out that's communism i guess and time and time again, we see that, you know, socialism, because in, in countries where it doesn't seem to be working terribly well, it tend, you know, the uh, it becomes more dictatorial. It tends to lead towards communism because there's this belief that we need to try and look after everybody. And then that somehow ends up with killing millions of people on the streets. No, well, they say Cuba can free itself from that particular claim again. But the, what actually happened under the Soviet system also involved the Soviet system doing a level of specialization that uh, would be the, the dream for a neoclassical vision of, uh, of, of, of comparative advantage. And of course, Cuba, uh, its main role in that was to produce sugar. Now, something, I don't know the actual proportion of the land that was devoted to sugar production, but it was huge, 30% of the arable land of the country, maybe even more. Uh, and in return for that sugar, they got exports from the Soviet of in- industrial products and you know medicines and so on. Uh, and then when the Soviet Union collapsed, bang, that disappeared. So a major part of, of, of Cuba's problems was suddenly they were massively export dependent because of this in, in, intra, international specialization under, I think it was called Comic-Con, uh, which is not, a, not the comic convention, but <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, and, and they were screwed mm. and they had to rapidly revise the economy. So there've been times when they've reacted very well and rescued themselves from that. But what you do see in Cuba uh, is precisely this thorotic, um 
non-functional state system where, to quote Russian workers at the time with the, the Soviet days, they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. And the yeah. reason this happened is that you had, um, and this is where Janos Kornai's vision I think is extremely important, um, he, ha- he talked about socialist economies being supply-constrained and capitalist economies being demand-constrained. He said in a demand-constrained economy, uh, well, actually, I'll start with the supply-constrained economy, particularly because most of these countries were third-world developing. Russia was a feudal country when, when, the, uh, when the Soviets took over. Uh, you wanted to industrialise rapidly. Therefore, there was need for every industry to have to invest and expand. And consequently, the physical resources you had uh, at the time, were, every, every sector had a demand for more resources than you in the aggregate had. So you had to ration the resources. And therefore, nobody ever got quite what they needed to fulfill what they were allocated as their planned quota. So therefore, you had shortage. And in the situation of shortage, the simplest way to guarantee you got as close as possible to the targets that you knew you couldn't meet uh, was to produce exactly what you produced last year. You didn't innovate. Uh, And consequently... Uh, people were being paid high salaries as well because you wanted the workers to be well paid. So you're paying high, high salaries and therefore, but, but the factories aren't producing enough commodities. Yeah. So what you do is you ration them. And like an ex-girlfriend of mine, uh, shall remain nameless. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, there's too many. Here. We've all lost count. Yeah, yeah that's fair enough. Okay. <laughs> um, she was in a, one of the Soviet bloc countries, um, not actually Soviet, but you know, Soviet satellite. And um, she wanted a television set and it was a 10-year wait to get a TV. And she bought one on a trip she made to America, brought a colour TV back instead, getting around the restriction because she was part of the um, intelligentsia or the place she could get away with that. But literally, you'd wait 10 years for a tele- television set, 15 years for a refrigerator yeah. and stuff like that. And that's the failure of, this, of, the, of a completely non-market-driven system, centrally planned, low innovation and inability to supply. Uh, whereas they believed they would be flooding us with goods and services. And I've got, we can actually talk a bit about the technicals of that if you like in another program. I'll get carried away with um, differential equation models of the Russian economy I wrote back in the 80s. Yeah, let's not um, do that now. Let's, let's not do that now. But um, <laughs> and then on, the, on the other side, capitalist economies are demand constrained. He said, in a demand constrained economy, you are trying to produce something for individual profit. You have competitors, and those competitors. Uh, will be producing a similar but not identical product to you. Let's say we're talking about uh, television sets here. Then uh, what you will do is to actually bring customers away from your competitors to you. You've got to produce something slightly more interesting than what they've got. So you innovate. You go for you know you go from LCD screens to OLED screens. All the you know, it's in cathode ray tubes. For those who don't know them, they they were the original television sets. Mm. Uh, all the, the way bloody forward. heavy ones. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and, and that technological progress means that you get innovation, which, of course, that innovation leads to more growth. Yeah. But you'll have booms and slumps in the whole process. And so his argument was that given that that underlying really deep dynamic, which has got nothing to do with totalitarian regimes, nothing to do with assholes, it's all benevolent dictators, uh, or even you're going to have benevolence, actual democracy, uh, voting for socialism in that sense. Uh, he said that will give you a, a command economy which grows more slowly and innovates less than a market-oriented, demand-constrained economy. 
And I think that, that's the underlying principle that I have that I think really ex- explains why the Soviet system failed and why the West succeeded but has all the problems the West has. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a bit like if you're bipolar, isn't it? And then they give you some medicine to uh, try and uh, stop you having your highs and lows and you just mm. you just become yeah. maudlin as a, as yeah. a result. I mean, a, a, a classic point on that, Venezuela, you know, I, I mean, I'm not saying this is necessarily innovation, but it certainly would have helped their economy. I mean, they sit on a massive oil reserve. They never did anything about it. Yeah, well, it's, um, this is, uh, like, again, there's been a similar thing with Ecuador, for example, and just to give that comparison, uh, Ecuador discovered a very large oil reserve in a national park that's part of the source waters for the Amazon basin. And they said, if we exploit this, we're going to do enormous damage to an extremely vital ecosystem. Um, so they said, look, we don't want to do that, uh, but we, we need the money. So can we actually get any arrangement where we're paid to preserve the resource in terms of the Amazon's pristine environment at its, at its head uh, from the public, you know, from, you know, things like the Paris Accords and so on? And they couldn't get it. And they finally said, reluctantly, we're going to mine that oil. So it's uh, the, the intriguing thing for anybody who gets the, the Venezuela comparison thrown at them is says, why don't you compare it to Ecuador? Mm. And I'm not saying Ecuador's golden by any means, but uh, the, there's things that happened that I don't know that I'm, I'm not going to really, willing to comment on in, in the absence of any information to the level I, I like to have before I comment uh, about the Venezuelan situation. Corbyn has uh, sort of said that you know the uh, the violence that we're seeing in in Venezuela. He's uh, he's done a bit of a uh, Donald Trump and sort of uh, condemned it on all sides. What he hasn't done has said, uh, well, you know, perhaps the Venezuelan regime went a bit too far, and it's all a question of balance, as as you've said. If he said that, if he just said that, I first of all, the uh, the Tory party uh, would be a bit legless in terms of that line of attack, which seems to be mm. it's common from all politicians at the moment. It's obviously in their briefing notes, uh, comparing him to <laughs> Venezuelan socialism. I had it so much in the media over recent weeks. But if he was to sort of like say, yes, it's all a question of balance. We've gone too far one way. Uh, we need to start looking at, uh, you know, what should, what should be in public hands and what shouldn't. Um, I mean, he squids in for the next prime minister. Well, I think I don't know enough about the most recent campaign material from the Labor Party, but I hope I think that's what they're drifting in the direction of, and it's it's what they should not only say they should also believe it. Mm. And um, you know, I I think we're going to see what you're seeing in the Tories is a real panic reaction, Um, and they're trying every possible scare campaign they can to stop what appears to be inevitable. So, um, it, to me, it's, it's a sign of how asinine our political system is. That's the level of debate we get rather than people looking at a considered situation and saying, well, in fact, there's a certain point beyond which you should not have state ownership. There's a point beyond which you should not privatise. And in the UK, um, the Tories got their complete uh, freedom to do the privatisation, they said, and it led to you know, in, in transportation fees, in, in one case I'm quite familiar with, being impaired to income five times what they are in Sydney. Mm, no, not to get, not not to forget mm. the uh, rising rich poor gap and all that sort of stuff as well. But you know, on the other side, it's it's very difficult to get Jeremy Corbyn to speak out against Venezuela and their approach to socialism, mm. uh, even though uh, clearly it hasn't worked too well. What's happened is the oil price has fallen, obviously, and that uh, and the economy was over dependent on oil. And I make it very clear that I think there should have been 
greater diversity at a time when there was a very high oil price. Right, yeah, well, there we are. I mean, surely if it's centrally planned, then the fact that there wasn't diversity in the economy is the government's fault. Maybe, just maybe, Jeremy Corbyn's seemingly slavish adherence to Venezuela isn't helping his case a great deal. If really what he's trying to say is we should have a more mixed approach to the economy, which I think is more palatable in most people's minds. Or maybe he really does believe that we should go down the road of Venezuela, in which case perhaps his views are too extreme, uh, even if some of his policies in isolation, like renationalising the railways, for example, makes perfect sense. Uh, Certainly, the Tories have seen Venezuela as Corbyn's Achilles heel. Instead, the Conservative approach, well, let's have a listen to Rees Mogg on this. He could be the next Prime Minister. Uh, He seems to think that we should look after one another, um, not using socialism, but just by loving thy neighbour. Adam Smith's baker baking the bread, not because he thinks you're all lovely people, but because he wants to make his living, but therefore he bakes you the best bread he possibly can. Why is it you get him run somebody else? So he loves his neighbour because he makes a fiver out of it, and that's perfectly acceptable. And you see that from that, you improve the condition of mankind and you have lifted billions out of poverty. So I think we follow through from a very straightforward Christian moral ethic that love of your neighbour leads you to choose the right thing to do, leads you to choose to help raise the standard living of your neighbour, because that also helps you, leads to a better and stronger society, and that the socialist leads to North Korea. And the socialist always does. Wherever in the world socialism is tried, it always has to lead to more controls, because the truth is that if you tell people that their own labours will not benefit them, they will cease to labour. And therefore, you have to stand over them with a whip to make them do things. Yeah, Rees Mark, forgetting to mention, of course, the idea that capital accumulates. And the more money you have, the easier it is to make more money. And therein lies the problem that we've been discussing today. Each side seeing things in black and white, where obviously the solution mm. is somewhere in the middle ground, occupied by nobody in politics today. Mm-hmm. I think that's the problem. Good to talk, Steve. Okay. And next time, uh, well, basically what I said was coming next last time, but we did want to get this one in, uh, in light of the Tory party conference last week. But we're back on track. So next time, uh, another topical one, given the final round of the Brexit negotiations underway. Will a United States of Europe ever work? Was Churchill right and his dream was just badly executed or was it a bad idea from the beginning? That's next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. Till then, I'm Phil Dobby. I'll see you then. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.